August 18, 1997, was a hot summer day in Carthage, a small town in East Texas that was built on a lot of oil money. Now, Carthage, population 6,500, had a slogan, the friendliest place in the world. It was known for being the type of place where everybody knew everybody else's business, and also for having a lot of rich widows. Jennifer Nugent was worried about one of those widows, her grandmother, 81-year-old Marjorie Nugent, who she called Nanny. Marjorie was the richest woman in town. After her husband, Rod Nugent, had died in 1990, he had left Marjorie a fortune that was estimated at six to $10 million. Marjorie was notorious in town for being the town's richest and some say its meanest resident. No one seemed to like her, and at least according to the media reports that came out at the time, no one seemed to be looking for her. Marjorie did have family, a son, Rod Jr., and granddaughters, but they lived out of town in Amarillo. It took nine months, but finally, Jennifer decided to make the trip with her dad. They called the police to report Marjorie missing, and then they drove together to her sprawling 6,000-square-foot home set on a huge estate surrounded by a stone wall. Jennifer and her dad somehow got through the locked electric gates and saw that the house seemed to be in order. At least, there didn't appear to be any obvious signs of a struggle. Marjorie's car was there, but according to the local news station, KLTV, it was dusty. It looked like it hadn't been driven in a while. Her dog, Bo, a chow mix, was in the garage and seemed to be fine and well-fed. According to Jennifer, there had been some tension between Marjorie and the family since her late husband died. So at first, when they didn't hear from her, they thought that maybe she was just avoiding them or that maybe she'd gone on a trip. While Jennifer was walking around the house, it seemed like she had kind of a light bulb moment. She suddenly thought about the fact that her grandma had been a child of the Depression. She was someone who hated to waste food. Anytime Marjorie left town, her family said she had a habit of taking her food out of the fridge and putting it into the deep freezer in the garage. Jennifer walked over to the freezer. She saw masking tape on it, which seemed kind of weird. So she ripped it off and opened the lid. She pushed aside some food and saw something else, something that looked like a white sheet, and then the top of a head. She was horrified to realize that her grandmother's body had been stuffed in that deep freezer and covered with a thin layer of frozen chicken pot pies. Deputies from the Panola County Sheriff's Office came to the crime scene to retrieve the body. And that turned into a crazy scene in itself. The sheriff had to get his deputies to take the whole deep freezer out, with Marjorie's body still in it. They were trying to figure out how they were going to get it to the medical examiner's office, which was all the way in Dallas. Finally, they loaded it into a pickup truck, which was attached to a gas-powered generator so that the freezer would keep running. The body was driven to Dallas for an autopsy, and the medical examiner would later testify that he had to let the body thaw out for two whole days before he could start examining Marjorie. Detectives also found a 22 caliber rifle in the garage, which they later determined was the murder weapon. The cause of death was pretty easy to identify, Marjorie had four bullet wounds in her back. And once they identified the suspect, the case would become one of the craziest cases that had ever hit small-town Texas. It's a case where a little old lady was shot four times in the back by a con artist who admitted that they stole money from her 
stuffed her in the freezer, and lied about her location for months. And yet, everyone in town seemed to take the killer's side. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. In Carthage, as the press would later report, it seemed like everybody knew Marjorie Nugent, who went by Marge. And it also seemed like almost no one had a kind word to say about her. Her husband, Rod Nugent, had been the town's wealthiest banker. He'd been married to Marjorie for over 50 years. Rod had a long and successful career with Magnolia Oil, which later became mobile. They had one son, Rod Jr., who became a doctor. But according to Marjorie's family, Marjorie had a pretty strained relationship with Rod Jr., and they weren't on speaking terms. Marjorie and Rod lived various places in the South, but ended up in Midland. In 1989, they moved to Marjorie's hometown of Carthage. And they immediately made waves because Rod bought controlling interest in the First National Bank of Carthage. The couple built their dream home. Marjorie made a splash in the town, too but not necessarily in a good way. It seemed that everyone hated her. Journalist Skip Hollingsworth, who covered the story for over two decades, wrote an article in Texas Monthly. He called Marjorie's murder, quote, an East Texas version of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, end quote. Even some of Marjorie's own family members talked about what a difficult person she had been. Her nephew wrote an article in the New York Times. The title was, how my Aunt Marge ended up in a deep freeze. One line read, quote, There was something about Aunt Marge's ending up in a freezer that seemed appropriate. She'd always been kind of cold-hearted. It was not an unfitting end, end quote. But Marjorie did have one close friend, a 38-year-old former funeral home employee named Bernie Teedy. Bernie and Marjorie really were the odd couple around town because everybody in town loved Bernie. He seemed to be as beloved by the town as Marjorie was hated. He was a sweet, pudgy, caring guy who loved to belt out Amazing Grace in church, gave money to people when they were in trouble, and seemed to have a kind word for everyone he encountered. Bernie was born in 1958 in Abilene, Texas. His mother and father were in a bad car accident when he was young. His mom was in the passenger seat, and she was killed. Bernie would later tell people that his dad never recovered from the guilt of that accident and that this had led his father to start drinking. Bernie's dad died when he was 15. Bernie would also claim that an uncle had molested him beginning when he was just 12, an allegation that his uncle denied. After high school, Bernie got an associate's degree in mortuary science from a college in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and became a mortician. He came to Carthage, Texas in the mid-'80s, and started working for the Hawthorne Funeral Home. Everyone said that Bernie was great at his job. He was the ultimate funeral director. He could embalm, do hair and makeup, conduct the sermons, and even sing Amazing Grace at funerals. He seemed to have such a naturally caring nature that drew people to them, and everyone felt comfortable with him taking care of their families. There was some talk that Bernie took a special interest in some of his clients, the older, wealthy widows, And he told reporters after Marjorie's death that he did have a habit of offering that personal touch to some of the families he helped after the funerals. 
He said that he would go by their houses and check up on them. Bernie met Marjorie Nugent in 1990 after he handled the funeral arrangements for her husband, Rod. They quickly struck up a friendship, and before, they were pretty inseparable. Bernie was seen as harmless and not predatory for another reason, too. People quoted in Skip's article made it clear that Bernie had no romantic interest in women. It was heavily implied that he was gay. But this was Texas in the 80s and 90s, so people didn't come right out and say that. They would say things like, Bernie was a little light in the loafers. Bernie would later admit that he was gay. He talked about how hard it had been to come out in the South in the 80s. And as someone who grew up in Arkansas, I totally get where he's coming from. There were sexual revolutions going on in New York and L.A. during that time. But, as with a lot of things, the Deep South was lagging a few years behind. Bernie would later claim that he started talking to Marjorie after the service. He noticed that she was starting to shiver, so he offered her his coat. Eventually, Bernie became her constant companion. His role seemed to be somewhere between friend and some sort of manservant. Eventually, he said that Marjorie talked him into quitting his job at the funeral home. According to the New York Times, this couldn't have been too difficult a choice because Bernie was making around $18,000 a year at the funeral home. Marjorie lavished him with gifts worth that amount in just a few weeks. Bernie's family said that he had always been a shopaholic. He loved to spend money on his friends as well as himself. Bernie and Marjorie went everywhere together. She took him for trips around the world. From Alaska to the pyramids in Egypt, they went to Europe on the Queen Mary, and they flew back from Paris on the Concorde. Wherever they went, they went first class. They would go to New York for the weekend, catch Broadway shows. They ate at Michelin-starred restaurants, drank the best wine. She even bought him flying lessons, and eventually, bought him a small plane. But Bernie was about to find out the hard way that when you start a relationship with someone for money, you have to earn every penny. And according to several accounts, Marjorie did make sure that Bernie knew who was in charge. He ended up buying a house right down the road from hers, which he filled with the knickknacks he collected, including his plastic penguin collection. Still, for several years, Bernie and Marjorie appeared to be living the high life, And her husband had always been really careful with money. So for the first time, she seemed to be out enjoying life. Marjorie seemed to thaw out a little bit, at least for a while. And they settled into a routine. Bernie would come to her house in the morning between around 7.30 and 8. He would make her coffee. Then he would usually go home, but he had to be back again for lunch at exactly 11.45. He was also expected to constantly check in with Marjorie, no matter what he was doing. Bernie did everything for Marjorie. He did her laundry. He helped her style and pick out her clothes. He even did extremely personal and intimate things for her, according to the New York Times. He once said, quote, I, on occasion, trimmed her toenails, helped her pull out the long hairs that grew in her chin, combed her hair in the morning. Everything that you could imagine, she had asked me to do that for her, end quote. He said, though, that this did not extend to sexual favors. Marjorie was 42 years older than Bernie. He explained that he saw her as a mother figure, companion, and friend. But other people would question the nature of their relationship. Marjorie's family believe that Marjorie was deeply in love with Bernie, and they say that he had her convinced that they were in a romantic relationship. And a couple of friends that they traveled with to one of those Broadway shows seemed to back this up too. 
Later, at trial, one of the friends said that she had seen Bernie passionately embracing Marjorie and that they shared a room when they were on vacation. Bernie did admit that Marjorie's money was a lure, but he insisted that the reason he didn't leave her over the years was because he didn't want to abandon her. Over the years, though, Bernie would later tell investigators that Marjorie became more and more demanding and more and more controlling. Meanwhile, Bernie was inserting himself into every aspect of her life. He was taking her place at the first National Bank board meetings. And this was worrying some of her family members. Marjorie had always had a strained relationship with her son, Rod. But her granddaughter said that they had always had a good relationship with their grandmother. They said that Marjorie did become upset with them because they didn't show up for their grandfather's funeral. But she described Marjorie as a loving person and said that she'd had a great relationship with her growing up and that it was totally unlike her to cut off contact with her grandchildren. She said that they went to visit Marjorie in 1994 and were shocked when Marjorie basically shut the door in their faces and told them that she didn't want them calling anymore. The granddaughter was also alarmed to see that the pictures of her late grandfather were gone and pictures of Bernie were all over the place. But at the time, she was in college and admits that she didn't focus as much on her grandmother's private life as she perhaps should have. She said it just never occurred to her that someone who was so well-liked and who her grandmother loved could ever do anything to hurt her. Around 1995, Bernie started telling people that he believed that Marjorie was developing dementia. Her family say that Bernie was the one feeding that paranoia, and that increasingly, he was keeping her isolated from them. They said that Bernie was running a con on their grandmother. At some point, Bernie bought a 22 caliber rifle. He told people that that was because armadillos were digging up Marjorie's yard and that she wanted him to shoot them. Then, November 19, 1996, Marjorie seemed to disappear off the face of the earth. And every time someone asked Bernie where she was, he had a different story. He told people she was sick, that she was visiting family in Ohio. He told people that she was in a nursing home with Alzheimer's. And then, when investigators started asking around, he said that she was in another hospital, but had checked in under an assumed name and didn't want to be bothered. By now, police were closing in on Bernie. They questioned him, and he confessed almost immediately to killing Marjorie. He said that he'd shot her on November 19, 1996. His confession was short and to the point. It read in part, quote, I had thoughts of hitting Marjorie in the head with a bat or anything for a couple of months prior to November 19, 1996, but I did not want her to suffer. Marjorie had a rifle in the freezer closet. I had moved the rifle into the bathroom near the garage. She had walked out into the garage toward my car. I took the rifle and shot Marjorie in the back. She fell face first. Marjorie was still breathing heavily, so I shot her again. I may have shot her one more time. I did not want her to suffer. I then dragged Marjorie by the feet from the garage to the freezer. I had taken the food from the freezer. I placed her into the freezer and covered her with the food. I took a water hose and washed the blood from the garage. I swept up the bullets along with some leaves and threw them away." End quote. Bernie Teedy had just admitted to police that he had shot Marjorie Nugent, a little old lady, in the back four times. And incredibly, the whole town took his side. 
Police wanted to know what had motivated Bernie to shoot Marjorie and then to stuff her body in a deep freezer and go about his life like nothing had happened. He said that on several occasions, he had tried to break away. He had told Marjorie that he wanted out of their bizarre and dysfunctional relationship. But, he said, Marjorie would freak out every time he tried to leave. On one occasion, he said that he tried to drive away and she blocked his car by locking the electronic gates. Bernie's supporters said that he was behaving like a woman in an abusive relationship. On November 19th, Bernie said that he was following his usual routine. He went to Marjorie's house to make her coffee and woke her up sometime around 7.30 in the morning. Then he went home to take a shower. He came back at around 10 a.m. His plan was to take Marjorie to the dry cleaners. At some point, he moved the 22 caliber rifle from a closet to the garage and cleared out the freezer. While Marjorie was in the garage petting her dog, Bo, he shot her four times in the back. According to his confession, he then stuffed the five-foot-two body of Marjorie into the freezer, covered her with frozen food, taped the freezer shut, and went on about his life. He said that over the years, he began to feel more and more trapped and powerless within his relationship. He would later admit that Marjorie's money had been a lure but he insisted that the only reason he continued to stay with her was because he was afraid of abandoning her. He said that she had no one else in her life to help take care of her. Meanwhile, her family were outraged. They said all along that Bernie's syrupy sweetness was really just an act. They said Bernie had no remorse and that he was a pathological liar. They created a website, MarjorieNugent.com, to tell their side of the story. Now, a lot of people claim that if Bernie and Marjorie's genders were reversed, they believe that the public would have no problem accepting Bernie as the victim. But I'm not so sure that this theory holds up. Marjorie was in her 80s. She was frail and tiny, so she was in no way a physical threat to Bernie. And even if you make the argument that this was more of a case of emotional abuse, Bernie did not live at Marjorie's house. He had his own place at least a mile away. Although he claimed that he tried to leave several times and Marjorie would lock the gate, etc., there's no suggestion that Bernie was in any immediate physical danger. He claimed that Marjorie emotionally and psychologically abused him. His attorneys would later make the argument that because of Bernie's temperament and the fact that he was scarred by childhood sexual abuse, he had been unable to escape Marjorie's hold on him. Right after taping the freezer shut, Bernie went out to a local theater dress rehearsal where he was a cast member of the musical Guys and Dolls. Everyone said that he seemed completely normal that night. He was his happy-go-lucky self. After the dress rehearsal, he took the cast and crew out for pizza at Pizza Hut, and he used Marjorie's credit card to pay the bill, according to People magazine. Now, whether this meant he was having some sort of a psychotic break or was in a fugue state or was a ruthless, cold-blooded con artist is something that would come up later at trial. Either way, for the next nine months, Bernie went on telling people in Carthage stories about why Marjorie was no longer around. And at the same time, he was blowing through her money at a crazy pace. He spent over $2 million in just a few months. And he didn't spend it all on himself. One of the reasons Bernie was so popular was because he always bought things for people. He gave $100,000 to the First Methodist Church, helped people buy cars, and even bought a house for a young couple who couldn't afford to do it themselves. Now, press reports at the time paint a picture of a woman who was so evil that no one missed her. 
But her family said that Bernie had purposely isolated their grandmother more and more. One of Marjorie's granddaughters actually claims she believes that Bernie targeted her grandmother after Marjorie bought a $30,000 headstone from him. So from the beginning, she believes that money was his only motive. All that time, though, because Marjorie had no other close friends, no one except, of course, for Bernie would notice her absence. Bernie was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. The Panola County District Attorney, Danny Buck Davidson, whose name, by the way, sounds like a character from a Faulkner novel, wasn't buying Bernie's story. He charged Bernie with first-degree premeditated murder. Meanwhile, the IRS showed up. They charged Bernie with money laundering for the seven-figure amount he had already allegedly stolen from Marjorie. In his article, Skip Hollingsworth described Danny Buck Davidson as bulldog-faced and said that Davidson had asked for a change of venue for Bernie's trial because, he said, quote, I'm not sure I can find 12 citizens in Panola County willing to convict T.D., end quote. Bernie had groupies all over town. He had killed an elderly lady, but he was definitely seen as the underdog. Bernie's attorneys made a case that this had been a crime of passion. They say he shot Marjorie in a blind panic and that the only reason that he'd put her in that freezer was because he hoped that her family could eventually give her a proper burial that way. But Bernie was sentenced to life in prison, the maximum. But then, a twist that seemed to come straight out of a Hollywood movie happened, which makes sense because this case was turned into a Hollywood movie. Director Richard Linklater started reading about the case, and he became obsessed. So he and Skip Hollingsworth wrote a screenplay. They turned the story into a movie, the 2011 black comedy called Bernie, starring Jack Black in the title role. Matthew McConaughey played prosecutor Danny Buck. The movie was a hit, and the critics loved it. Shirley MacLaine played basically the same character that she played in Steel Magnolias, the cantankerous, mean old lady who was emotionally abusing, cherub-like, sweet Jack Black. An appeals lawyer named Jody Cole saw that movie, and then she too got sucked into the story. Jody did some research, and she figured out that Bernie had gotten the life sentence because he was found guilty of premeditated murder. But she believed, if the murder had been a crime of passion, Bernie's sentence in Texas could potentially be a lot shorter, between 2 and 20 years at the time and Bernie had already served more than 16. She also believed that the sexual abuse that Bernie claimed to have experienced could have mitigated his sentence. Shockingly, the prosecutor, Danny Buck, agreed with her. He stated that if he had known all the circumstances, he would have asked for a 20-year sentence maximum. Now, this enraged a lot of Marjorie's family members. But Bernie was granted a new punishment hearing in 2014, once again in a different county. And then, shockingly, he was released on bond. In 2014, he walked out of the courtroom a free man. After Bernie was released, he became kind of a cult celebrity figure. He even went to Austin to live with the director of the movie, Richard Linklater, Eventually, Bernie went back to court for a new trial, but this time without Danny Buck. Due to his past with the case and what a lot of people saw as bias due to the comments he'd made, Buck recused himself. 
He did tell 48 Hours that if he'd had the information about Bernie's alleged childhood sexual abuse, he would have asked for a 20-year maximum sentence in the first place, not for life in prison. This time, Lisa Tanner and Jane Starnes, two prosecutors with the state attorney general's office, were in charge. They had a very different idea about what had motivated Bernie to pick up a gun that day. They believed this case was all about money. Bernie's attorneys were making the argument that he had been overwhelmed with stress and emotion that day, that basically he had a disassociative episode, kind of blacked out, left his body, and had no memory of the event. This is always tough to prove. I think back to the Betty Broderick case, where they used a similar argument. In that case, she walked in and shot and killed her ex-husband, Dan Broderick, and his new wife, Linda, while they were sleeping in bed. One of the key arguments in that case was the fact that firing a gun once as a reflex might be understandable. But once you start firing multiple shots, the case gets a lot more sketchy. Bernie's attorneys claim that his childhood trauma made him feel that he was unable to fight back when Marjorie allegedly emotionally abused him. On November 19th, according to court documents, Bernie said that Marjorie started making negative comments, berating a friend of Bernie's. He said that's when he lost control, experienced what his attorneys called a psychological disassociative experience, and felt as if he was floating outside his body when he picked up the 22 and pulled the trigger four times. A lot of Marjorie's family members claimed that Danny Buck, Richard Linklater, and everyone else had been conned by Bernie. And at trial, it came out that there was a lot of other evidence that pointed to Bernie's guilt and a possible motive. First of all, there were forensics. Bernie had not shot Marjorie four times in quick succession, like they showed in the movie. He shot her once, which paralyzed her. He then stopped to pet the dog, walked up to her, and while she was lying there, paralyzed and bleeding to death on the floor of the garage, shot her three more times at close range. There was also the fact that he had moved the murder weapon, the rifle, from a closet to the garage that morning, before he went home to take a shower. The prosecution would argue that this did point to premeditation and also gave him plenty of time to think about his actions and to change course. He could have stopped what he was doing before he went back to her house, or even after the first shot, he could have called for help, but he didn't. Once we separate the wacky antics of the people around Bernie and the crazy characters in this story, in a red-collar case, it comes down to the boring financial details and to following the money. And this case was all about money. Bernie's family said that he was a lifelong shopaholic. He had a habit of overspending way before he met Marjorie. Marjorie had given him access to a lifestyle that he never would have been able to lead otherwise. In 1991, Marjorie changed her will completely. She disinherited her only son, Rod Jr., and left everything she had to Bernie. Some of Bernie's supporters made the argument that Marjorie's will had already been changed, so Bernie was already getting all of her money when she died, and she already spent a ton of money on him. So they asked, why would he take the risk of killing her? But a close look at Marjorie's financial records showed that over the years, Bernie was controlling more and more of Marjorie's life and stealing more and more of her money. First, he pressured her into giving him power of attorney. Then he forged documents and lied to her about how much money was in her accounts. He would show her fake bank documents with amounts that he had altered. 
In court, it came out that Marjorie believed she had almost $7 million in her account. The reality was, Bernie had stolen all of it. Prosecutors were able to present evidence that Bernie had stolen at least $3.8 million and potentially much more. Then there was his behavior after the murder. Now, a lot of attention was given to the fact that Bernie was so generous and spent so much money on other people. A lot of those pro-Bernie stories leave out the astronomical amount of money that Bernie spent on himself. According to court documents, Bernie forged Marjorie's signature on a letter asking for a transfer of $225,000 from her account. He spent $50,000 on random gifts for people, invested $40,000 in a country western store called Boot Scoot Western, and bought tons of clothes and items for himself. The most dangerous time for victims of a red-collar criminal is right after the fraud has been discovered. Prosecutors discovered that right after Marjorie died, she was scheduled to meet with the new trustee of her family trust. Now everyone, even her own family, said that Marjorie was a difficult and not particularly forgiving person. So Bernie would have known that once Marjorie met with that trustee, that person would have told her about the missing money. Bernie would once again be broke. And after putting in all that time cutting Marjorie's toenails and catering to her every whim, he was not going to risk being cut out of her will and losing everything. Bernie's attorneys painted a picture of Marjorie as a mean, bitter old woman who emotionally abused him. They said that on November 19th, her abuse triggered the memories of sexual abuse, and Bernie snapped. In court, plenty of character witnesses stepped forward. They talked about what a great guy Bernie was, and they also said he'd been a model prisoner. He still worked for groups to seek to improve conditions for inmates. He was a member of a men's chorus in Austin and a Methodist church in his neighborhood. They even said at Christmas he would dress up as Santa Claus and pass out presents to children in church. By the time Bernie's second trial started, he was 57 years old. This time, he showed up with his pet bird, a parakeet named Hermes, and once again, he talked to Skip Hollingsworth. The prosecution hit back. They said that there was another reason why Bernie needed to kill Marjorie on November 19th. They said that Bernie, the so-called sweet guy, was really greedy, narcissistic, and manipulative. They brought out evidence that he had scammed other people back in Louisiana at a funeral home that he worked for there. And they brought in another witness who testified that Bernie had moved away from Louisiana after allegedly stealing from the funeral home. Bernie's financial fraud followed him to Carthage. His former boss at the Hawthorne Funeral Home said the IRS had shown up in town not long after Bernie did and that they were looking for him. On at least one occasion, Bernie had used the funeral home account to repay his American Express credit card debt. According to the Dallas Morning News, one of the prosecutors described his actions to the jury as a one-person Ponzi scheme. They also brought in their own expert witness, who totally disagreed with the defense's assessment. They said that even if the sexual abuse did happen in exactly the way Bernie described, it would not, in their opinion, have triggered the actions of November 19th. The expert, a psychiatrist, also said that there were signs in Bernie of narcissism and an antisocial personality. One of the most significant moments in the case happened when he gave his assessment and his opinion over whether Bernie could harm anyone else. Because at the previous trial, one of the main 
themes and the reason, in my opinion, that Bernie was released was because everyone thought that he was just such a sweet guy who had been pushed too far and he would never hurt anyone again. But at the second trial, his pattern of financial fraud and lying finally caught up to him. The psychiatrist said that Bernie's history indicated that if he was released from prison, he may go on to con someone else, or even worse. One of the prosecutors summed it up. She said, quote, We'll present the facts that are not through Hollywood's eyes. This is about a murderer con artist, end quote. She brought up the fact that he had paused at least once during the shooting, that he coldly stuffed Marjorie into that freezer, and then he went out to play practice. The next day, he wrote himself a check for $20,000 on Marjorie's account. Some of Marjorie's family members also took the stand. Her first cousin, Ruth, said that she had never seen Marjorie act mean or abusive. She said that after Marjorie disappeared, she asked Bernie several times about where she was. She said she didn't go to the police, even though she was concerned, because she said, quote, Bernie was so well thought of in town. If I was wrong, I'd be the laughingstock of Carthage, end quote. So was Bernie a good guy who had a bad day? Or a ruthless con artist pulling a sweetheart scam on a defenseless old lady? Skip said that after writing about Bernie for over 20 years, he's still unsure what to think of him. He wrote, quote, I'm not sure what is left to say. I have a feeling that Titi will always remain a mystery, either a very good man who snapped and did one very bad thing, or a con man who fooled nearly everyone he met, even after he committed murder. End quote. I saw the movie Bernie, and I have to say I loved it. It was funny, and it really told the story of the culture of East Texas, which, as they explain in the movie, Texas isn't really one culture. It's almost like it's divided into at least five different states. You've got your hipsters in Austin. You have the business around Dallas and the other big cities. Um, you have the western part of the state, which is, you know, tumbleweed and ranches. And then you have East Texas, which is on the border with Louisiana. And it really is an old school, deep south region. But all I could think was, after reading about this case, the events in the movie are so crazy and wacky that it is funny. Unless it had happened to you. And it was your grandmother who was left to bleed to death on a garage floor. At the second trial, Bernie was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Finally, Marjorie's family said they felt vindicated, and they had their chance to have their voices heard. Marjorie's granddaughter, Shannon Nugent, told People magazine, quote, The premise was, the nicest guy in the world is driven to murder by a bitchy woman. This is the worst kind of criminal. It's scary when a known con man is proven to have done all of this, and people are still willing to believe the con. And Hollywood makes a movie out of him, end quote. Marjorie's family have said that they hope that the case will motivate family members who have an elderly relative who may be vulnerable to take steps to protect them. And there's evidence that we need to do this, both in our own families and as a society. Because another fact emerged at trial. There's evidence that Bernie was running out of Marjorie's money, and he may have already been focusing on his next victim. Sources say that he was already whining and dining another rich widow, this time in Nashville, Tennessee. In April 2016, Bernie was resentenced to 99 years in prison. Today, 
He's incarcerated in Texas, doing his time at a minimum security facility. Once again, he seems to be a model inmate. In an interview with the Longview News Journal that was posted on YouTube, Bernie said that prison was like, quote, going to church camp with a whole bunch of strangers, end quote. He still enjoys knitting, crafting, and singing in the prison choir. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>